Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we ask that as we open your word this morning, that you would examine us, search us and see if there be any impure way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite stories is about a a couple of friends, Gertrude and Ethel, driving down the highway one day when they're pulled over by a police officer. And as the officer approaches, Gertrude rolls down her window and says, is there a problem, officer? And he says, well, ma'am, I just wanted to make sure everything was okay. Did you realize you were going 35 miles per hour? And she says, oh, yes, officer. I'm a very cautious driver, and I would never intentionally go over the speed limit. He laughs. He says, well, ma'am, the problem isn't that you were going over the speed limit. The problem is you were going half the speed limit. It's 70 miles per hour here on the interstate. And she just shakes her head, and she thinks, well, this, this officer's obviously made a mistake. And she points ahead, and she says, you see that big sign up there, officer? It says 35. And he says, ma'am, that says Interstate 35. And at that moment, he leans down to look in the passenger seat, and he sees Ethel just with a look of sheer terror on her face, her fingernails dug into the dashboard in front of her, And he says, ma'am, is she okay? And Gertrude says, oh, her? Yeah, she'll be fine. We just got off of (laughs) I-435. I preached several weeks ago in a sermon titled, The Worst Sermon Ever, that there are twin errors that we can fall into when it comes to the law. We can fall into what's called legalism or antinomianism, essentially the views that either A, our salvation is the result of our own works of righteousness, or B, that because our salvation is not of our own works of righteousness, we can just do whatever we feel like doing. And so often, like Gertrude driving what she thought was the speed limit, we as Christians today can have a skewed perception of reality, a skewed view of God's law. She, she thought she was obeying the law, didn't she? She wasn't trying to break the law. She was trying to abide by the law, but what she was actually doing through her misunderstanding of the law was endangering her life, her passenger's life, and the lives of everyone in the vehicles around them. The law, brothers and sisters, is not in place to keep us from enjoying life. Quite the contrary. The law, whether we're talking about speed limits or God's law as found in the Old Testament, is given to preserve life. It acts as a guardrail to ensure that we get where we're headed. So in the text that we're looking at today, I want to draw our attention first to what I think is its major theme, and then secondly to what that implies for how we live. In other words, what is the purpose of God's law, and what is the relationship of God's law to the life of the believer? The theme of this passage that we've just read, and the main thing I want for us to take away from our time together in the Word this morning, and if you write anything down, write this down, righteousness cannot come through the law, but through Christ alone. 
And because that's true, there are certain implications for how we live. Those of us who are in Christ are called to walk according to God's standards. So, to do this, we need to ask why were the law and the prophets given? This is the language that Jesus uses in Matthew 5, 17, the law and the prophets. Why were the law and the prophets given? And then we need to understand what does that mean? What are the law and the prophets? Well, let me just begin by saying that the law and the prophets were given as a guardrail to show us what Christ would be like. So, in a verse like this, we see Jesus saying the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. What what is he referring to? Well, the law and the prophets is essentially shorthand for the entire Old Testament. So, those of you who have been around church for a while know that the first uh, big chunk of your Bible is what we call the Old Testament. It's Genesis through the book of Malachi, and it's an enormous portion of our Bible. So, when Jesus says the law and the prophets, he's talking about all of that, okay? He's talking about the Old Testament. And in various places, the Bible tells us some really helpful things about the Old Testament that will help us to understand and make sense of what we're reading in Matthew 5 today. Listen to this. Psalm chapter 1, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in what? The law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Another example of what the Bible has to say about the value, the beauty, the authority of the Old Testament is found in 2 Timothy where Paul says in chapter 3 verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, when Paul was writing this, we didn't have the New Testament yet. That's what he was doing. So he wasn't talking about the New Testament. It applies to the New Testament, but that's not what he had in mind. That's not what the reader of his letter, Pastor Timothy, would have had in mind. When Timothy read this, and he read this to his church, what they would have been thinking of was Genesis through Malachi. Every word of Scripture is breathed out by God. That means all the narratives, all the law, all the poetry, all the prophets were breathed out by God. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus tells some of the Jewish people, you pour over the Scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. He goes, you're missing it. All of Scripture is about me. And one last example, after His resurrection, Jesus is walking with two of His disciples on the road to Emmaus. And their minds are kept from realizing that this is Jesus that they're walking with. And he lets them go on for several minutes about what they think happened in Jerusalem over the the past couple of days. And he's just walking with them, letting them talk. Yeah, we thought Jesus was the promised Redeemer. We thought He was the Rescuer, but He's dead. And Jesus is going... I can't wait to tell you. And then he goes this, Luke 24, 27, he tells us that beginning with Moses, that's the law, and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He explained to them that the reason Genesis through Malachi was written was himself. 
So this is what Jesus is talking about in our passage today. I love the way the New Living Translation renders the first verse of our text. Listen to this, Matthew 5, 17. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. So we've just seen from the Psalms, from the epistles, from the Gospels, and from Jesus Himself that He is the very purpose that the entire Old Testament was given to us. It's binding, it's authoritative. In other words, God gave the law and the prophets to show us what Christ would be like. So what does the Old Testament tell us Christ would be like? Well, I just want to focus on two key areas, that He was truly human and truly God. We didn't just come up with this, and we also didn't just learn this about Him after He arrived. This was foretold. This was promised. The New City Catechism asks, why must the Redeemer be truly God? And and it answers helpfully that because of His divine nature, His obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective, and also that He would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. That's why He had to be truly God. I think most of us kind of get it. Like, if we're Christians, we know Jesus is God. But what I think Christians have wrestled with for centuries is how could God truly be human? He's so far above us. How could He actually be human? But that was promised to us too. And I'm going to give you what the New City Catechism says, and then we're going to look at a few passages of Scripture. The New City Catechism asks, why must the Redeemer be truly human? That in human nature, He might on our behalf, as a human, perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin, and also that He might sympathize with our weakness. Because it was man who sinned. Man had to pay the price. So listen to what this says. Psalm chapter 22, verse 22, tells us this. This is the Son speaking to the Father. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. And that passage from Psalms didn't make sense to us until Jesus came in the picture. But then the the writer of Hebrews quotes that passage in Hebrews 2.12, and then he explains a few verses later in Hebrews 2.17 that Jesus had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. No, no mere human could do that effectively, and so he had to come and be truly God. Psalm 16.10 says this, you will not abandon me in Sheol or allow your Holy One to see decay. This was a promise of the Messiah. This was a prophecy that was fulfilled when Jesus was resurrected. Why would the Father not let the Son see decay? Why would He not abandon Him to Sheol? Well, again, the New Testament makes sense of this for us. Jesus comes on the scene, and then the, the apostles explain this to us, and we go, I see now. Acts 2.24 tells us that Jesus was resurrected because it was not possible for God to be held by death. It's possible for me to be held by death. Michael, it's possible for you to be held by death. Chris, it's possible, right, for you to be held by death. 
But it's not possible for God to be held by death. That's why Jesus had to be truly God. So Jesus, what he does in coming and fulfilling the purpose of the law is he makes sense of it. We read it and we go, okay, I kind of get it. I kind of see the picture. But then when Jesus arrives on the scene, we go, oh, now I see. The phrase that Jesus uses in Matthew 5.17, to fulfill, refers to doing. Jesus didn't just come to fulfill prophecy. He came to fulfill law, too. How many of you have ever tried to obey the law of God? It's hard work, isn't it? We can't do it. Jesus did. He came and He fulfilled that. He did it. Why? Was it just to save us? Well, that was an important part of that. He said He came to seek and save that which was lost, and we rejoice in that. But He also obeyed God's law because He loves God's law. Hebrews 3, 2 tells us that Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him. Why was Jesus faithful to the Father? Because he loves him. Because they're in perfect union with one another. And Jesus makes this radical claim that his life is the perfect accomplishment of the law. And if Jesus loves the law of God, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we love the law of God too? Listen to what the the psalmist says in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, and you can read this on the screen as I read this to you. The instruction of the Lord, that's another way of saying His commandments, the instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold and than an abundance of pure gold and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them, there is an abundant reward. That's not the voice of someone who talks about the law of God like it's a burden, is it? The psalmist looks at the law of God and goes, this is good. As Paul tells Timothy, the law is good. We uphold the law. It's amazing to me that it's so easy in our culture for us to go, well, the law was done away with in Jesus when He says the exact opposite. How silly would it be for Jesus to come and say, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to abolish the law. We'd go, what? He doesn't say that. He says, I came to fulfill the law. And because He fulfilled the law by doing it, because He loves it, we should love it too. Since the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, Protestants have understood the law uh, kind of through this lens, these uses of the law. And I think they're helpful. One of the uses that we find for the law is a, a mirror to reflect back to us our sinfulness. Paul says in Romans 7, verse 7 and following, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. The second use of the law is to restrain evil. That's the civil use of the law that we see even in our our very own society when someone's going 35 miles an hour on the interstate. The civil law says you're endangering other people's lives. Pull over, stop endangering their life. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the civil use of the law. And then finally, to teach those of us 
in Christ how we ought to walk now that we've been saved by Him. And we find that kind of a concept in Ephesians 2.10, where after Paul tells us that we've been saved by grace through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast, then he goes on and he says, but you were created in Christ Jesus. You are His workmanship. You are His masterpiece created in Him for good works. We only know what those good works are through the law of God. So the law has its purpose in Christ, but it also has these uses for us. And each of these uses and the purpose of the law points us to Christ. The law is given, you shall not covet. And we say along with the Apostle Paul, I'm not even sure I knew what coveting was until the law was given. And now I know, and now I know that that transgresses God's good standard. It's good that I know that because I didn't know that before. And now that I know, I can try terribly to walk in that way. We say like Paul does in in Romans 7, the things I don't want to do, I just keep on doing. The things I want to do, I can't get myself to do. And it seems like a bit of a rat race, doesn't it? Until we realize and remember the law's purpose. It shows us our sinfulness. It shows us our need for Jesus to save us because we can't save ourselves. Jesus alone is able to keep the law perfectly, and that's exactly where he goes next in our passage. Listen to what he says in Matthew 5.18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So there's two things here. Until heaven and earth pass away and until all things are accomplished. So if you're taking notes, write this down. The law remains until heaven and earth pass away. Have heaven and earth passed away? Doesn't look like it to me. You can engage with me if you want. It's passing away, but it has not passed away. When will that happen? Well, that's the second part of that. Jesus tells us that that won't happen until all things are accomplished. So what does this mean for us? Well, for one thing, it gives us a deeper and a more biblical understanding of what it means to say we are not under law but under grace. Who in here has ever said that? I'm I'm not under law but under grace. Have you ever said that phrase? It's okay if you have. It's biblical. That's what Paul says in Romans 6.14. But unfortunately, that phrase is often used to make excuses for not obeying God's commands. Some of what the law contained had to do with sacrifices and the temple and not wearing mixed fabrics and refraining from eating certain foods. So naturally for us today, the question arises, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, 19, are we loosening or breaking one of the least of these commands and teaching others to do the same? If I'm not going to the temple and making sacrifices or if my shirt is a poly cotton blend, Am I going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven because I bought this shirt at Walmart? Well, the short answer is yes. And I hope that gives you pause. Because the longer answer is that I hope you just heard me say that and you thought to yourself, I'm not sure I agree with that. 
Let's consider this for a moment. Do we still, cons- do we still observe the sacrificial system? Yes, in Christ. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 tells us that he's our once-for-all sacrifice. Do we still have a temple? I'm not talking about the church building. Do we still have a temple? Yes. Jesus tells us in John chapter 2 that after they would destroy the temple, he would raise it up in three days. And they go, brother, it took us 40 years to build this temple. And you're going to rebuild it in three days? He was talking about his body. We have an eternal temple found in Jesus. So here's the tricky ones. Do we not wear garments of mixed fabric? No, but we still observe that law. Because we do so in metaphorical terms. We as Christians are called to have a single-minded devotion. That's what this law was referring to, a separation distinction, devotion. So, our garment, the righteousness of Christ, is mixed with no other fabric. It's not mixed with the fabric of our own righteousness. It's not mixed with sinfulness of the world. It is a pure garment, and that is what the law referred to. Do we still refrain from eating certain foods? I had some really delicious bacon yesterday. So, in that sense, no. But why? The New Testament makes clear that God has made all foods clean. And that wasn't the case in the Old Testament. He declared certain foods unclean. So what's the discontinuity here? Why can we eat bacon besides the fact that it's delicious and nutritious and crispy? I haven't had breakfast today. I don't know if you can tell. (laughs) Well, because in Acts chapter 10, Christ tells Peter, Three times, what God has made clean, do not call impure. You see, the food that was declared impure under the old covenant was an image of those of us who are not national Israel. We were far off. Listen to what the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. We were excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Bacon has been redeemed. Praise God. To put it another way, those who, like me, were unclean and who were cut off from God have been washed clean and have been brought in as a covenant member of God's family. How? By Christ accomplishing the purpose of the law. He does this in several ways. His sinless life, what theologians call his active obedience. He walked in the ways of God. We couldn't do it. We try, and we should try, but not to earn our righteousness. But Jesus came, and he walked perfectly according to the law of God. That's his active obedience, his sinless life. He also does so in his, what we call his passive obedience, or his death on our behalf. Did Jesus deserve to die? No. Did I? Yeah, I deserve to die. Jesus did not deserve to die. So he passively took upon himself the consequence that I deserve. So he fulfills the purpose of the law 
in His sinless life, His sacrificial death. He also is fulfilling that in His glorious appearing. How many of you know that Jesus has actually come back? After He ascended, He came back. Some of you might be sitting there going, what is this strange teaching? He came in 70 A.D. at the destruction of the temple in judgment. He prophesied this in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse. They're leaving the temple, and His disciples are just fascinated by the beauty and the grandeur of the temple. And He goes, not one stone is going to be left on top of the other. And linguistically, if you study what He means there, He's going like, even the, the cracks between the bricks are going to be gone. And that was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. He came in judgment, but we still await His glorious appearing. This is when the heavens and the earth will pass away, and the new heavens and the new earth will come. We read about this in Revelation 21. But Jesus concludes this teaching by saying that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, a couple of things to consider here. Is he saying that the scribes and the Pharisees are righteous enough to enter the kingdom of heaven? No. He's saying it has to be something greater. You see, what the Pharisees did was they looked at the law of God and they said, thanks God, good start, we'll improve upon that. And so they added burdens upon the nation of Israel. And those who came in from other nations and wanted to be part of that covenant, they said, okay, but you have to do this and this and this. And then the new believers are going, I don't see that in here. And they're going, yeah, yeah, no, we added that part. Have you ever hyperextended your arm? You have friends in sports that have hyperextended joints? Not a good thing, right? That means it's going beyond how it should be extended, yes? So what the, what the Pharisees, what the scribes did was they hyperextended the law of God. They went beyond its intended means. They went beyond its intended use. It's what we would in today's vernacular call self-righteousness. So the scribes and the Pharisees were considered experts at knowing and interpreting the law. But Jesus tells them in Matthew 23 that their righteousness was merely external. Let's know what he tells them in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law. What are the more important matters of the law? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. But he tells them, You look good on the outside. You've impressed everyone in the congregation of Israel because they're all comparing themselves to you, Pharisees, scribes. But inside, it's all rot. It's all decay. So how do we earn this better righteousness? How do we achieve? How do we attain? How do we accomplish better righteousness? Well, it's not by doing It's not by human will or effort. Better righteousness is not earned. It is credited 
We read about Abraham in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 15. God makes a promise to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and every nation on the earth will be blessed by your offspring, singular offspring, Jesus. If you're sitting here today, you have been blessed by that seed, that offspring of Abraham. Even if you're sitting here today and you're not a Christian, you've been blessed because what you see around you in culture, anything good, comes as a result of God's faithfulness. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow or change. So if you have food on your plate, it's a result of the goodness of God. You've been blessed in Jesus, and I, I want to call you, if you're not a believer today, I want to call you to be blessed eternally in Christ, not just here and now. But God makes this promise to Abraham, every nation on earth will be blessed through your offspring, Jesus. And then it says this, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. That's that better righteousness. He didn't earn it like the Pharisees, like the scribes sought to do. He simply believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is what it means when we sing the children's song, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons, all nations, had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you. So what do we do? Let's just praise the Lord. Amen? There is some rich theological depth to that children's song. You might hear that and go like, oh, I remember that from Sunday school. That's just a silly little ditty. No, that's rich theology. That is Christ-exalting theology. And finally, I want for us to consider this all-important question. Is our obedience to the law the cause or the effect of our standing with God? We heard Jesus tell us in our text today that whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we go, okay, which is it? (laughs) Do I obey or do I not obey? We obey not to earn righteousness because righteousness cannot be earned through works of the law but through Christ alone. But because we've been declared righteous, because we believe God and He has credited that to us as righteousness, now that third use of the law, we walk according to His standards. Amen? So whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What commands? Are we being called upon to slavishly adhere to every minute detail in the Old Testament? Well, consider this for a moment. In in the passage that we read in Matthew 5, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law. And then he says just a sentence later, whoever breaks or loosens one of the least of these commands will be called least in the kingdom. Abolish and break are translated into English from the same word. Is the student greater than the teacher? Is the servant greater than the master? No. So when Jesus uses that same word, I didn't come to abolish the law, you better not abolish it either. What he's telling us is what he would not abolish, we must not abolish. We must not break. 
Rather, Jesus explains in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. John the Beloved writes in 1 John 5, 3, this is what love for God is, to keep His commands. And His commands, John says, are not a burden. Not a burden at all. Jesus invites weary souls. Listen to the words of Jesus. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Matthew 22, an expert of the law comes to Jesus and he tries to trip him up and he goes, what's the greatest law? Out of the hundreds of law that we find in the Old Testament and the hundreds more that we've added, Which one's the greatest? And Jesus replies, and he sums up the entirety of the Old Testament by saying, first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. But this wasn't some new teaching. He was simply quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. Jesus was revealing to Israel that while they thought they were earning God's mercy and grace by driving 35 down the interstate, they were really endangering their lives by misunderstanding and misapplying the law. They were looking at the wrong sign in the wrong way. So how may we love the Lord with our whole being? How may we love others as ourselves? Well, one thing is certain. We can't do it in our own strength. We have to do it as we walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. That's why I'm reading these slow, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. I don't know, Christian, where you find yourself today, but if you've been sitting today under conviction as the Word has been opened to us, because you realize that you have sought to earn your righteousness by works of the law, I implore you to repent and trust Christ alone for your righteousness. If you have, on the other hand, used grace as an excuse to disobey God's commands, I implore you to repent and trust Christ to renew in you a love for His law that reflects Jesus' love for God's law. Perhaps some of us today have felt superior to others for either wearing or not wearing masks while we're out shopping. I'm not telling you which way to do this, but I am telling you if you have felt superior to others because they have done it differently than you, that is something to turn from. That is adding to God's law and our law, our righteousness has to be greater than that. Maybe you found yourself condemning others for their response to the riots and looting throughout our society. And I'm not commenting on whether they ought to riot and loot. Yet Jesus calls us first to remove the plank from our own eye so that we can help our brother remove the speck from theirs. Our righteousness has to be greater. So if you have found yourself watching the news or scrolling social media 
and what wells up in your heart is not love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and self-control. I want to invite you today to lay that at the feet of the, of the Lord and say, I need a greater righteousness than that, God. Where can this righteousness be found? In Christ alone. Believe God. Believe the promise and find that as Paul tells us, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. And listen to this. He says, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who, what? Come to church regularly, who tithe, who volunteer their time. No, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe.